One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Before kicking off today's episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Feedspot for featuring spies and lies in their top 10 spy podcasts. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast delving into and analyzing acts of espionage throughout history, tracing the exploits of daring spies, covert operations, assassinations, hacking, secret organizations, and more. Co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover, thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. And without further ado, Let's dive into today's episode. Mata Hari. The following is an excerpt of the accounts of a British journalist originally published on October 19th, 1917, during Mata Hari's execution. Gently shaking Mata Hari awake, she arose and was told that her hour had come. "May I write two letters?" she asked, and consent was given. Matahari given writing supplies and feverishly writing before handing the letters over to her lawyer. Taking her long black velvet cloak, edged with fur, she draped it over herself before putting on a large black felt hat with a black silk ribbon and bow. Slowly, indifferently, she pulled on a pair of black gloves before speaking calmly. "I am ready." Taken to a waiting automobile, Matahari was driven to a remote location. The troops were already drawn up for the execution. 12 stood in a line forming the firing squad their rifles at ease and a sub officer stood behind them sword drawn matahari walked to her designated spot a french officer approaching her carrying a white cloth whispering c'est blindfold to which matahari replied must i wear that if madame prefers not it makes no difference matahari not bound and not blindfolded stood gazing steadfastly at her executioners a sharp crackling command sounded and the 12 soldiers stood at attention another command and their rifles were at their shoulders each man gazing down his barrel at the breast of the woman which was their target she did not move a muscle and the rest we'll continue with later in the episode so matahari not at all what i expected No, I must say that I was quite surprised about some of the things I read about Matahari. There were some things I thought that I knew and apparently I didn't. And I was quite saddened by the story. I think it's very tragic, tragic story, tragic ending and maybe. No, uh, we'll go into it, but not as expected. Definitely not as expected. No. 
Now, Matahari is a name many might be familiar with because it's become part of the zeitgeist, you could say, of a lot of especially European thought. And she actually inspired this whole concept of the femme fatale who we see till this day, the spy who uses her feminine guile to get what she wants, the truth being perhaps something a little different. Yes, very much different. Let's dive into the story and then see what happens. All right. Well, Matahari was an exotic dancer and courtesan. She was famous and sought after in Europe, especially in Paris. But her life was cut short when French authorities accused her of spying in World War I for the Germans, and she was executed. But what's the truth here? Because as we'll come to see, Matahari did admit to spying, but claimed she only ever spied for the French. Hmm, interesting. Yes. Matahari was born on the 7th of August in 1876 in Leuwarden, the Netherlands. But she was not born Matahari. She was born Margarita Gertrudia Zelle, Magritte for short. She was the eldest of four with three younger brothers. And despite many claims of other types of heritage, whether they be Jewish, Indonesian, Malay, or Javanese, she was in fact Dutch through and through. Her father owned a hat shop and invested in oil, becoming very successful. And with this success, he spoiled Magritte. At six, she became the talk of the town when she traveled in a goat-drawn carriage her father had given her. In school, she was known to be flamboyant, appearing in flashy new dresses quite often. She was offered a great education thanks to her father's success until she was about 13, when everything fell apart, because her father became bankrupt. Her parents soon divorced, her father remarried, and not long after, her mother died in 1891. Magritte went to live with her godfather and actually studied to become a kindergarten teacher. However, during her studies, she had an affair with headmaster, which was a scandal and she was removed from the institute, fleeing to her uncle in The Hague. At 18, she answered a newspaper ad by the Dutch colonial army captain Rudolf McLeod. The ad was looking for a wife and was placed as a joke by his friends, supposedly. Marguerite sending a striking photo of herself, raven-haired and olive-skinned to entice him. She was a very beautiful woman, after all. Not long after, the pair married in Amsterdam on the 11th of July, 1895, while McLeod was on home leave from the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia. He was nearly 20 years her senior, a bald man with a big mustache, but who knows? Maybe it was uh, a true romance, a beautiful marriage, love at first sight. What do you think, Dad? I don't think so. I think she was looking for a father figure, looking for someone to take care of her. I think she was betrayed up till now by all the people she loved, and she needed someone that will take care of her. She was used to a certain life, and that's what she was looking for. And it, all over, all if you look at all her adventures afterwards, it's a motif that continues the whole time. Now, McLeod was from an affluent Dutch family with Scottish ancestry, hence his name. Because he was from such a stable family, Magritte felt her finances were secured, and she was moving into the upper class of society. Where she felt that's where she should be. Yes, which was like her childhood. Yes. In 1897, they moved to Java in Indonesia. They had two children, a son in 1897 and a daughter in 1898. And though this is where the story might end with this kind of happy marriage, children and everything, it wasn't quite the case because their married life was not a success. McLeod was alcoholic and regularly beat her, as well as practicing the local custom in the Dutch East Indies of openly having a concubine. For a time, Marguerite even moved in with another Dutch officer living with him. It's at this point that Matahari was born, 
because she began studying Indonesian culture and dance, joining a local company, eventually announcing her new artistic name in correspondences back to the Netherlands, Matahari being the sun, literally translated as eye of the day in local Malay languages that she was exposed to. McLeod eventually did convince Matahari to return to him, but the situation didn't improve, unfortunately. At one point, he even almost killed her with a knife, but Matahari fell over a chair, giving her time to escape the room. And continuing to escape from her horrible life, she delved deeper into Indonesian culture. In 1899, however, a tragedy occurred. Their children got very ill with complications related to syphilis, which was likely contracted by the parents, Matahari and McLeod. McLeod having gotten it earlier, and probably having given it to Matahari. The family, however, claimed that the illness was poisoned by an irate servant, and unfortunately, Matahari and McLeod's son died, but their daughter survived. Some sources even go so far as to claim one of McLeod's enemies poisoned their food to try to kill them. But as we'll come to see with Matahari's story, so much of it remains in mystery and unknown. Moving back to the Netherlands, the pair separated on the 30th of August, 1902. Their divorce finalized in 1906, Matahari gaining custody of her daughter, but she was never paid child support. And on her daughter's visit to McLeod on one occasion, he simply didn't return her to Matahari, who had no means to support her. And even though he was an abusive husband, Matahari did feel he was a good father. So she resigned herself to the situation, unfortunately. And this is where the story truly begins. It's interesting to say that's the last record of her actually being involved in Indonesia. All the rest of her history and all the things she did are related now to Europe and specifically France and Germany, mm -hmm. Spain. And we'll get to that later. But five years she was in Indonesia. Yeah. And those five years actually in everybody's mind is Matahari, Indonesia, Matahari, Batavia, as they called it then, the Dutch colonies there. And she um, picked up from there something, not talking about the disease, that made her very unique. And that uniqueness was the key for her success and for her failure. Well, exactly like you said, we're talking about Indonesia, we think about Indonesia, and that's what she would have wanted, because that's how we'll come to see she chose to present herself to the world. In 1903, after losing her daughter, Matahari moved to Paris to start over, saying she wanted to live like a colorful butterfly in the sun, taking many odd jobs to make money, including performing as a circus horse rider and also posing as an artist's model, struggling to earn a living. Then, drawing on her experiences in the Dutch East Indies, she developed a so-called Hindu dance act and began performing, part of her routine being slowly stripping off her colorful robes and veils until nearly nude. Adding to her mystique, she adopted her old stage name, Matahari. Later saying, I never could dance well. People came to see me because I was the first who dared to show myself naked to the public. Claiming she was a Javanese princess of priestly Hindu birth, she pretended to have been immersed in sacred Indian dance since childhood. These kinds of fake backstories for performers were relatively common at the time. What was different here is that almost everyone believed her claims, as the Dutch East Indies were not very well known in Europe at the time. On the 13th of March, 1905, she performed her debut, and she was a sensation from the start, quickly becoming the longtime mistress of a millionaire who had founded the theater she performed in. Reviewers praising her, writing, 
Matahari personifies all the poetry of India, its mysticism, its voluptuousness, its languor, its hypnotizing charm. Forget the fact that she never claimed she was from India, just shows you the knowledge of geography at the time. But this idea of exoticism captivated. Matahari's dances elevated the form of erotic dance to a more respectable status, breaking new ground in a style of entertainment that Paris will later become famous for. The whole Moulin Rouge and everything. Yes. So she was kind of the first to popularize this in a big way. She was declared a star of dance in 1908 and traveled Europe to sold out crowds and took on lovers and dalliances with powerful men, aristocrats, military men, journalists, and basically anyone who would pay would pay or took her fancy. Yes. And they all showered her with gifts. At one point, she may have even been a millionaire. Now, she got past the obscenity laws of the day by claiming that her dances were based on Eastern temple rituals. And during her performances, she explained in French, Dutch, English, German, and Malay that My dance is a sacred poem. One must always translate the three stages that correspond to the divine attributes of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, creation, fecundity, destruction. Each movement is a word, and whose every word is underlined by music. The temple in which I dance can be vague or faithfully reproduced, for I am the temple. A French journalist wrote that Matahari was so feline, extremely feminine, majestically tragic, the thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms. A Viennese journalist added that she was slender and tall with flexible grace of a wild animal and with blue-black hair, her face making a strange foreign impression. Clearly, they bought her exoticism. Yes, look at the time where she was acting and what she was doing and where she came from. And that was the only way she could really make some money. And she knew the way to do it and take advantage of the knowledge picked up in Indonesia and bring it to the uh, French audience. And Paris was the place she went to. And I mean, she later even, she toured all over. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was interesting that she never went back straight to, to the Netherlands. Never thought of going back to Holland to perform, to perform, or even well, if I'm, they we knew don't know about Indonesia about. more in Holland, right? Yes, and they knew her more in yes. certain parts. So. so she preferred to go to where they didn't know her, and where, obviously there was more of an audience in uh, in Paris, and that's Absolutely. where she went. Yeah. Now she was photographed repeatedly and provocatively during this time. Her ex-husband McCloyd obtaining some of these photos and strengthening his claim in keeping custody of their daughter. And Matahari, writing on the 28th of March in 1904, said how she missed her daughter and was even contemplating suicide. My child, my house, my comfort, don't think that I'm bad at heart. I have done it only out of poverty. By 1910, at 38 years old, Matahari's star began fading, and younger imitators were taking the spotlight, as critics began snubbing her act as cheap exhibitionism. Her final show was in 1915. But Matahari became a successful courtesan afterwards, and her relationships with powerful men allowed her free travel across Europe, as well as the advantage over Dutch neutrality in the war that broke out in 1914, the war being World War I. But Matahari's free movements across borders attracted attention, and she became increasingly suspicious to British and French intelligence, not least of which, when World War I broke out, she was in Germany, England and France's enemy. Yet little did they know that when she actually left Germany, her bank accounts were frozen there and her luggage seized. So 
a little bit of uh, mixed up intelligence, which, as we'll come to see, is a bit of a theme here. Yes, very unfortunate for her. How do you account for all this bad intelligence that we're going to come to see? Actually, I thought there was some very good intelligence that came out as well, but we'll get to that later. Okay. And so we come to the great mystery of Matahari, her espionage career. Matahari is synonymous with espionage, and yet, as the case may be, she may not have been much of a spy at all. And if she was, she was likely not a very good one. Would you agree? I would agree. I I didn't see anything about any training she went through. She didn't have to do anything specific or special. And we'll get to it in a moment. Well, you you could argue that the training she had was just her life experiences of, you know, interacting with so many different cultures and people and the languages that she learned because she was obviously educated in many different languages and that kind of stuff. I mean, you could see why someone would want to recruit her at this point, potentially. Here's a person with a neutral passport who can travel all across Europe, who has dalliances with people from all over society and cultures, could potentially be a great source of information, right? I mean, it makes sense to approach someone like this. It makes sense to approach someone like that, yes. But let's see what happened. You'll reserve your judgment till the end, is that what you're saying? Just before the end, because we heard about the end. <laughs> okay. In 1915, Matahari returned to the Netherlands and started seeing the Honorary Council of Germany in the Netherlands, Karl Kromer. Little did she know, Karl Kromer worked for the German Secret Service. He offered Matahari 20,000 francs to spy for the Kaiser, and needing the cash, she took it. But later, she claimed to have never agreed to take the job, only the cash, saying she believed the payment was reimbursement for what was seized from her a year earlier. Remember her luggage and bank accounts. Also, bear in mind, she was seeing this guy, so the payment could have been interpreted in lots of different ways. What's the truth? Was she spying or was she not? It's unclear if she ever did conduct any espionage for Germany, at least at that point. But what we do know is she does return to Paris not long after, perhaps simply due to having the cash to do so now. However, taking a boat to France from the Netherlands, it stops in the UK, where she's questioned by an intelligence officer. Her knowledge of languages, English, French, Italian, Dutch, probably German and some Malay, and upper-class and well-put-together appearance, making her very suspicious. The officer saying she should be refused permission to be allowed to return to the United Kingdom. The officer sending a message to the French intelligence before releasing Matahari. I find this very interesting, this this piece of information, because there's two things to look at, or three things to look at, at this article you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. One, that the British intelligence had someone to question people who were transiting, because she wasn't actually going into the UK. Mm-hmm. And he was able to identify, out of all the people who were on the boat, or the ship, or whatever was, was or vessel she was on, that she was a person that they should look into because they had no information about her. Do you think it was 1917, uh, 1915 it was, I think it was, mm-hmm. 1915? I mean, it wasn't computers, there was no emails, there was nothing. It was just one man asking questions, had no information of someone coming before. No one alerted him to it, as far as we understand. So that's one interesting thing that he was able to identify. So it shows you the professionality of the people. Sure. Yeah. And the second thing is that he felt that it's important to alert the French. That means that at that time... Well, she was going to Paris. Yes, but he heard from her enough to understand that maybe there's a case here. And even if you think about those years, that the British decided, wait a minute, we should alert the French about it. That means even in those years, there was a relationship or connection or cooperation between the British and the French 
from their intelligence agencies. From the intelligence agencies, because they were at war together. Yes, they were all together. But still, you, you look at it more as an individual thing, as we've seen in other cases. That not everybody tells everybody about mm-hmm. other things that are going on. And in this case, although there was nothing specific, he felt it was important enough that what he heard from her when he questioned her at the boat, and we don't know exactly what came up there, that he said the French should know about her. Why? Probably there was something in a story that he felt that they should look at. Now, if he would have thought that she's worthwhile recruiting, why didn't he recruit? Why wouldn't he do that? I mean, if he, if he knew that she was recruited by someone else, it's one thing. But if she wasn't recruited... Why didn't he try and recruit her? So I feel that he knew a little bit more about it and they didn't want to be involved because she wasn't going to the UK and thought, you know what, let the French deal with her and see what happens. It set up something that actually changed the whole, her whole fate. Well, let's break, let's break this down a little bit. She never performed in the UK as far as I'm aware. Correct. So she wasn't as well known in the UK. So let's begin with that. Passports were a thing that existed back then. So yes. presumably when she was in transit, there would have been a line. You're in transit. You go to this line. You're coming to England. You go to that line. On the line of the in transit, they're looking at the passport. Now, in comes Matahari, who is an extravagant, beautiful, a person who stands out, let's say. Yes. So they're going to take a little bit alone, probably. Yes, with baggage and wealth. So they're going to take a little bit longer to look at her passport. Maybe they open the passport and they see, ah, you've been to Germany, you've been to France, you've been to Spain, you've been all over, and recently to Germany. In fact, after the war began, how did you get out? There's a war. How is this possible? The passport, I imagine, is what raised certain questions, and then questioned her, why are you going to Paris? Da 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 da. So to me, it follows logic that they would question her. Whether it was a brilliant intelligence officer to have identified her or not, I don't think it was necessarily. I think it would have been quite clear that she's a person that you need to suspect. Now, remember the borders. I mean, living, going from the Netherlands, I don't know where from, what, what port it was, but probably, let's say Rotterdam. Why Rotterdam. didn't they go directly to, to France? So they went through UK. So it was, was it, they had to change a ship? Probably. Well, you wouldn't go by land because of the war. Because of the low war. But still, it was it was an interesting scenario, in my opinion, mm-hmm. there. Okay, let's continue. Let's continue, yes. In Paris, Matahari carries on with her usual dalliances and also falls in love with a young Russian pilot serving with the French, who is actually significantly younger than her. This pilot actually even eventually proposes to her, and she accepts. But in 1916, the Russian pilot becomes grievously injured and Matahari is unable to visit him in the field hospital because she doesn't have permission. So, using her contacts that she's made amongst the different people that she associates with, she tries to find a way to get to him. And eventually, word reaches French intelligence, which was led by a man named Captain Ledoux. Captain Ledoux. Captain Ledoux. Which I'm probably butchering his name, so I apologize for the French out there. He found out about Matahari's attempts to reach her Russian lover and intercepted Matahari, seeing an opportunity. He explained to her, that unless she agreed to spy on Germany, they won't permit her to see her husband-to-be. Now, there are two versions of what comes next. Either Matahari is set up to fail to prove that she's a German spy because Captain Ledoux suspected as such or knew as such due to English intelligence or suspicions that he had, and as a result of which he would tell her to travel to The Hague via Spain and await instructions, which never came, which we'll get into, or he was genuinely interested in her spying for France and wanted her to try to reach the German crown prince. The reason for which is because before the war, she actually performed for the German crown prince, who was now a senior general on the Western Front. However, his involvement in the actual 
military was very minimal and much to do with German propaganda at the time. And it was bad French intelligence to never consider this fact that he never even really commanded anything larger than a regiment. So this whole trumped up idea that he was the leader and in charge and they have to infiltrate him was all German propaganda to make the Kaiser's family seem great. Regardless, in this version, Captain Ledoux wanted Matahari to seduce him for secrets. In both versions, she's offered a million francs as a reward for her services. Very strange. When I read about it and said a million francs, that's, that's absurd. That's, uh, yeah, you, I mean, even today, that's like five million dollars today or something. Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, he didn't have that money to give. Second, who gives that kind of money out? And third, it doesn't make sense. But it does make sense that he wanted to recruit her. Now, what did he know when he wanted to recruit her? We don't know. Did she even manage to get to see her fiance? We don't even know that either. And what kind of uh, training or contacts did he give her to do the job? None. None. So what's it all about? So what comes next, in both cases, is rather interesting. Because whatever the truth may be, contact with Ladeau is shoddy at best. She's given no training, as we said. No real support. Not even a target, if we go by the first version that he recruited her to prove that she was guilty. But if he recruited her with the target of the Kaiser, then she was given a target. Eventually, Matahari wrote to him through normal post, she wasn't given a special way to contact him or anything, that she needed an advance payment to buy new clothes if she was going to seduce someone. A key here might be that she says someone and not specifically the Kaiser, but we don't know what her train of thought was. So no contact, no support, no training, no advance payment, nothing. And either wait for instructions, go to Holland through Spain to try to catch her as a spy, or go seduce this guy and try to find a way, but no direction of how to do that exactly. Very suspicious. Eventually, Matahari travels to Holland via Spain, as one version of the story says she was instructed to do, and traveling by boat, she stopped again in the United Kingdom. This time, she's seized and arrested by Scotland Yard, possibly to do with the fact that she was advised never to come back again by intelligence. And this time, she's interrogated and admits to working for French intelligence. But the French don't confirm this. Ladal writes to Scotland Yard saying, Understand nothing. Send Matahari back to Spain. The British files summarizing his reply as, Ladal suspected her for some time and pretended to employ her in order to, if possible, obtain definitive proof that she is working for the Germans. Based on this, one would suspect that the British either knew something or suspected something. Again, not entirely clear what's going on here. No, not at all. It's very unclear the situation here. I mean, okay, she arrives in the UK when she knows that she, there might be something going wrong. Now, who does she, say, does she say she works for? For the French, not for the Germans. But the French, of course, she's not going to say she works for the Germans. No, because they're at war and, and the French war, are their allies. Yeah. Okay, so she works for the French. And she feels comfortable to say it because they're the allies. But then well, the French, she's interrogated first. She doesn't immediately well, say it. Well, of course not. Just I work for the French. No, she doesn't go out and say that. But when she's asked or interrogated in a certain time, she, she wasn't 100% trained to handle Well, she the, wasn't trained at all. Right. So her best thing is to say, yes, I, I, I'm working for the French. You, you check with the French. That would be the, the right thing for her to do. Now, what happens is that the French deny. Now, it's very strange, the French reaction. Very strange. Now, or there's no records of it. We don't know. Well, there's a record of the reply. The re but there's no records in the French establishment about her involvement as being a spy. Or is there? We don't know. 
French records have been sealed for a long time. They only recently were released. And even then, there's so much controversy and things redacted and not there. And the Germans actually released, I think it was in the 50s, information that they say she didn't actually spy for them. But again, we don't know. We don't know. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's look at the two situations for a moment. Scenario number one. Ladau had hired her to actually spy for the French and infiltrate the German crown prince. Why would he deny? Why would he send her back to Spain? Thoughts? It's legitimate for... It, it doesn't need her in France. But why back to Spain rather than... If he wants her to infiltrate him at the Western Front, surely he, he wants her he doesn't, closer. He doesn't need her in France because... Yes. That's where they are. He needs her somewhere neutral where she can get information because he has other assets that he can use in France. Mm-hmm. So he knows, and she can travel, and she can go even to, to Germany if necessary. So let's use her. That's, that's great. That's, that's the right thing to do, you would say. But why deny? If he's actually, we're taking a scenario where he's actually employing her and believes that she's a French spy. If she works for him, he doesn't want the British to know because it could jeopardize her mission. Because if the British are infiltrated or someone might say something or mm-hmm. a document will go out, then he's jeopardizing as okay. an asset. He doesn't want to do that. Could be as well, he's not interested that uh, the British would know that to confess who is and who is not working for him. Interestingly, the third thing I would say is actually he never reported to his commanders or to his superiors, who he was the the main man maybe, Mm -hmm. that he's actually running an agent. It's not his job to run agents. If he's the head of the service, he runs an agent? No, that's not your job. So why isn't there someone else that he can make she was in her contact? Was it something else he was doing? Was he playing a game? Was he doing something different? Was it he's doing, I won't say he had personal interest, but later on we find out maybe more about this gentleman. Maybe he did not, as an official letter came in saying, is she an agent? He never declared her as an agent. And he maybe wanted no one to know that he is actually asked her to be an agent. Therefore, it's easier to say, send her back. She has nothing to do with anything. Interestingly, I think, yeah. I think that's a more likely scenario. Also, he could have just as easily said, keep her imprisoned. But no, if she was actually working for him and he didn't want to admit it, he said, send her back to Spain. At least maybe then she can continue her mission. So there is that aspect. Yes. Let's look at the other scenario. He wanted her to get to Holland through Spain to uncover her as a German spy. If that was his initial instruction, why doesn't he say release her to Holland instead of back to Spain? doesn't make sense, right? Very confusing. Let's continue because I think the next story explains much more. Okay. Back in Spain in 1916, Matahari meets the German major Kalle, 
who either of her own initiative to try to do something for France or under instruction from French authorities or because she was actually a German spy and he was a contact of hers, she reaches out to him and they begin a flirtation. He actually becomes enamored with her. And after three afternoons in bed, he tells her that German troops and allies are planning a landing in Morocco, which was then a French colony. This is huge news. And apparently, Matahari then sends a message to Ladao, but gets no response. Matahari, seeking advice, turns to a French lover in Spain, who asks her to get more information from the German major, which she manages to do so. But the Germans then become suspicious. Other versions of events is that she requested from the major to arrange a meeting with the German crown prince. Remember, that was one version of the thing. Offering French intelligence in exchange for German intelligence or even cash. Or that she even, at that point, offered to spy for the Germans. So there's a lot of different situations going on here. Let's look at situation number one. When she accepted the 20,000 francs in Holland, she became a German spy. This was a contact. This was a handler. Go back into there. And now she's also a double agent infiltrating the French. And so she's passing on the information there and trying to play both sides. That's possibly Ladao's version of events, that she's a German spy and this was her contact, blah, 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 blah. Then there's the version of events that she was sent to try to infiltrate the crown prince. And in Spain, she's trying to do this and trying to play that maybe she can offer French intelligence in exchange to try to get closer so that she can get closer to the crown prince. Or there's the version where she's just bumbling along, trying to do something for France and winds up with him and gets this information and genuinely is trying to serve France and tries to reach Ladao, but it goes nowhere. Well, I want to look at something else here. I want to look at the information that he, she received. Mm-hmm. I think that's, in my opinion, that what's the keynote. Mm-hmm. She got information that's obviously very, very important about a possible attack by the Germans on Morocco. Now, if no one knew about it, and this is going to happen, that's a piece of information you really want to know. Now, there's two things here. Is it real information or is it information that was given to her by the Germans so that they can know that she works with the French and then they can see that actually she's been doubled? And therefore, they cannot trust her anymore. Yes, because one version of events is the Germans become suspicious once yes. she starts asking so the, all these so questions. So the question is, is this information a genuine information that this kind of information should have not fallen into the Allied hands? Now, if that's the case, then the Germans did not know at that stage, or the handler wouldn't have said what he said. But if it's false information, and it's good enough information to know that it will go to whoever it goes to, then it will immediately come to the attention of the Germans that she is not working for them anymore, and therefore she is not someone they can trust. So for the Germans, it's a very clear-cut situation, in my opinion, about what's going on here, if they have a suspicion on her. From the French point of view, if it's such good information and it's not answering, why aren't they answering? Why aren't they doing something about it? Well, she was never given a contact either. She's sending mail through the regular post and telegrams and, and But no a, f- a friend who knew something, okay, so she went to him. She told him. He said, oh, that sounds interesting. Get him more information. So there's someone else there who's should be on her side who's a french patriot you could say who understands the the importance of what is going on again this is a very very important key element of what happened there because that was the key of everything really mm-hmm. i mean where's where is she? is she a german spy a french spy or just someone who is trying to bumble along just to, to make ends mean and see what's happening and and, and i think the latter is the right thing. I don't think she knew exactly what was going on anyway. I don't think she knew if she was a spy or not. I I don't think she... Uh, let's come to it later. Whatever the truth was, when Matahari returned to Paris after getting no response from Ladeau, 
French intelligence had intercepted a coded message that the German major had sent to Berlin about a German spy codenamed H-21, which they interpreted as fitting Matahari's description to a T. Now, the German major's message may have been a calculated ploy to expose Matahari because he sent the message in an old code that the Germans knew the Allies had already cracked, perhaps because they were suspicious that she was working for the French and were trying to frame her. Or maybe they got sloppy. Who knows? What we do know is that it was all the evidence Ladau needed that she was working for Germany. And on February 13th, 1917, Matahari was arrested and confined to Paris's infamous flea and rat-infested cells in the Saint-Lazare prison. Months passed before her trial began on the 24th of July, 1917. Matahari charged with conducting espionage for Germany. At this time, France was in need of a scapegoat and a moral boost after suffering many, many losses. And this might be exactly what they needed. Matahari was adamant that she was never a spy for any country other than France, saying, A courtesan, I admit it. A spy? Never. I have encountered in this world riffraff and good people. I lose. I win. I defend myself when I am attacked. I take when someone is taken from me. But I beg you to believe me. I have never done an act of espionage against France. Never. Never. When questioned about the German major's message, she said that she had accepted money in the past, but denied ever passing secrets to Germans, saying, I never considered myself a German agent with a number because I never did anything for them. So she admitted to the money that she got in Holland, the 20,000 francs, but never admitted to anything else. Her prosecutor, at what was essentially a show trial with a verdict already set, said, The evil that this woman has done... He's not German. He should, no, he should be French. I'm surprised at yeah. you. Um... The evil that this woman has done is unbelievable. This is perhaps the greatest woman spy of the century. What do you think of that statement? It was right <laughs> and wrong in the same line, same sentence. Matahari was blamed during the trial for an intel leak that caused 50,000 casualties at a recent battle. However, there was no real evidence against Matahari. No. Ladeau's telegrams and radio messages that he intercepted are actually now considered to have been doctored by him, and evidence such as a regular stipend payment from a Dutch baron admirer of Matahari was twisted in court to be coming from German spymasters. The Dutch baron never was called to testify, nor was Matahari's maid who acted as an intermediary for the baron's payments. In less than an hour, Matahari was found guilty by a military tribunal and sentenced to death. Matahari exclaiming, It's impossible. It's impossible. Upon hearing the verdict. And now to continue the account by the British journalist, published on October 19th, 1917. The officer in charge of the execution extended his sword into the air as the sun, by this time up, flashed on the blade before it descended in a falling arc. Simultaneously, the sound of the volley rang out, flame and tiny puffs of grayish smoke issuing from each rifle as Matahari fell. But she did not die as actors and moving picture stars would have you believe when shot. She did not throw up her hands, nor did she plunge straight forward or straight back. Instead, she seemed to slowly collapse, settling to her knees, her head always up, and without the slightest change of expression. For the fraction of a second, it seems as if she tottered there on her knees, 
gazing directly at those who had taken her life. Then she fell backward and lay prone, motionless, with her face turned towards the sky. A non-commissioned officer drew his revolver from his holster, approached and bent over her, moving the muzzle of his revolver towards Matahari's left temple. He pulled the trigger, the bullet tearing into the brain of the woman. Matahari was surely dead. Well, as we said, very tragic. If I have to sum up the whole situation here, the whole story, I would put it in one word, betrayal. She was betrayed by everyone who said he'll take care of her, starting from her father, who left the family, or you could say from the bankruptcy, then left the family, left her with her mother, then her mother left her. Okay, she died young, but again, someone was supposed to take care of her. Then a schoolmaster, then a husband, and in the professional world of the espionage, the people who she was supposed to trust betrayed her. You would say that she, anyone she went to in the end turned against her. It's very tragic, a very sad story. Uh, if you look at it from the point of view of a professional and personal situation that went through in her life. Mm. Professionally, it was a disaster. I mean, of course, you can't judge things that, uh, today as it was well, then. But it's a sad story. The only happy thing about it is that her life has been immortalized, that her name lives on as, a, uh, as not someone who's been forgotten, as someone who, who had something, who did something, who maybe was an inspiration for other women in, in other, different aspects, not exactly the ones that you would think about. Well, during her life, she fascinated the world, or at least Europe. And her life continues to fascinate to this day. Documents from a trial that were sealed for decades only recently were opened, and many who've studied them have actually concluded that the case against her was very weak. Most of the prosecution's evidence was circumstantial. Her defense attorney was prevented from introducing witnesses backing her claims. And there's mixed views if Matahari was ever actually really a spy. Some say she was scapegoated or framed in order to raise morale, you know, blaming yes. the French losses. And those that believe she was a spy say she must have been a very low-level one at best. The true extent of her espionage really may never be known for certain. There's not even one report anywhere in any archive of anything that she mentioned or said. Certainly right? she didn't give any evidence that was no. particularly valuable to any side She of might any... have had something when she talked about the, the Germans wanting to attack uh, Morocco, but is there any one piece of note of information that was passed on to the Germans or to the French or to anyone else coming from her that was worthwhile something? Not that, that was, we're that aware was of. Nothing that we're aware of. Interestingly, Matahari's body was uh, given for medical study because no one was willing to claim her body. No family member was. And her head was actually embalmed at the Museum of Anatomy in Paris. But in the year 2000, it was discovered that it had disappeared, possibly as early as 1954, and it's still missing. Records from 1918 show that the museum also received the rest of her body, but none of it is accounted for. Finally, uh, another little interesting bit of note is that later, Ladeau, the French intelligence uh, officer, was charged with being a double agent himself, but was eventually cleared of the charges. So, interesting little bit of information to consider, yeah. adding to the whole confusion of this story. And that's her life. It remains 
captivating to this day and not at all what I expected when you think of the legendary spy Amata Hari. When you actually dive into it, it's not at all that. No. Lies. Lies. Spies and, and lies. lies. Yes. Yes. There's been so many movies and books and productions around her. There's a ballet now in Holland about her. There's a big museum. There's She was immortalized by Greta Garbo in early um, Hollywood. She's captivated. Yeah. Very sad, as you've said. It's a sad story, really, at the end of the day, because not one of the, well, if it's this version of events is particularly very, very nice to think about. I mean, I suppose for us in the West, the most positive version is she was a spy for Germany and we got her. But even if she was a spy for Germany and quote unquote, we got her, the punishment for her crime, which was very low level spying at best, was completely out of proportion. Look, she was executed by the people she worked for. What kind of message is that? (laughs) She, she thought she worked for she them. Worked anyway. for them she and thought she, she worked for them. Yes. And she was executed by the people she trusted the most, who she felt that she was working for. And that's not a very nice thing, is it? No, not very nice at all. Would you hire her? I was thinking about it earlier. And I would say that her capability to move in the circles she did were very, very tempting. But to run a person like that, you have to have very, very close contact. You have to have a handler on the job all the time because of the of her character. Not you're aware that she'll betray you, but, but she needs her guidance. Lack of, her lack she of needs training. Guidance. You need someone to you give need her someone more to direction. tell her where to exactly. You need. You just can't say go somewhere and do something. That, but again, it's different times. But still, would you? The question is a legitimate question. A person like that, that moves in the circles that she was moving in, you cannot say, no, I'm not interested. It's, it's just not right. You do have to find a way to run a person like that in the most cautious and discreet way. It makes sense why she would be an option, at yes. least. You know, we will eventually do an episode on another famous person who maneuvered in kind of these circles during World War One, which was uh, Houdini. He was also actually recruited to be a spy as part of his career as he performed in different places. His story may be a little bit more successful than Matahari's, but it's interesting. You know, these kind of famous people, it's it's a known thing to use them because they have access. When you look at the motive for her working for the different people she worked with, she was supposed to be a millionaire. So what, they took all her money and she was left with nothing. So she was in, it was all a matter of being in the wrong place in the wrong time, being in Germany when it, I mean, would you take all your money with you? I mean, that doesn't make sense. You don't have no other money to go. For for 20,000 francs, you get in advance. I mean, that doesn't happen. You don't get the kind of money like that. A million francs that were promised by the French. That's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and then she has to beg ridiculous. for some money to get something. I mean, who paid for her traveling? Okay, did you get any money? So I, many I find so many things here that don't make sense as a professional way. Just doesn't 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 click doesn't feel right as running someone like that as an agent i mean let, let's take virginia hall who we talked about in the second episode who was very independent and you kind of threw into a situation and she found her way with a person like that you can understand go infiltrate and then she'll just do it but she had training as well so let's not forget that and she was a different type of person exactly so it's also knowing who you're dealing with right because matahari didn't have to be someone else she had to be matahari yeah she wasn't supposed to be undercover. 
She wasn't supposed to do and go and do something different. Correct. She wasn't Matahari at night, and in the daytime she went out and no, did, she was no. supposed to be Matahari. And, and as Matahari seduced this guy because and she was Matahari. she was good at seducing people because she knew how to do it, and because of her name and her reputation, people fell for it because they wanted to. It was like, wow, I, I met Matahari. I was with Matahari. It wasn't like okay, uh, it was a bad thing. Wow, it was like. I have now a badge. I've, I've been to Matahari. I've been with Matahari. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that, she didn't have to do much. All you had is someone to direct her to do things. But was it done professionally? No, no. That's why, again, I'm looking at the British and I'm saying to myself, why the British knew to spot talent and know how to spot something that's, that's right. We noticed that before. Why did they give up on her? Why didn't they say to themselves, let's go and have a go at why her? Why wasn't she an interesting thing for them? Maybe exactly. they didn't know her. Right, because she didn't perform there, so they didn't know really what she could do for them. I know, but still a question: Did they know something else, or were they worried? Do they was there something in her story that she told didn't go them to something? Eaton or Cambridge, so they didn't want to? No, but her. remember with uh, Virginia Hall, Virginia Hall, they decided to recruit her when they noticed that she was someone that could be interesting because they they spotted her. So they do know how to spot the people. So why didn't they use do something? That's well, an interesting. Virginia Hall being thirty years. After the events of Matahari's life. I know, life, I know, I know. It's different. The, the British still, are a bit old-fashioned. No, as no, we, no. But look at it. Again, it's a foreigner. Someone who can travel and move the lines, who knows yeah, the language, yeah. uh, who has a reputation. It, More it of an was, asset, uh, maybe, it was, than uh, a spy. It was a younger question. version of, of, of her. But the British at that time, maybe they were not really looking to do more or outside of the UK at the time. I don't know. We don't know. Well, I want to ask you because I mentioned this when you were talking, maybe they saw her potentially as an asset rather than a spy. But then I thought more about that question, what's the difference actually? You know, someone who's an informant versus someone who's actively a spy for you. I don't want to go into the semantics of what's an asset, what's a spy at this stage. I just want to say that she was placed in a situation that she could bring information to the French on the Germans. If they wanted to run her properly, she could have brought in a lot of good information as she showed that she could. Why wasn't she allowed to do it? That is the big question here. Why did they decide to put her on trial? So you think she had potential to be a great spy? She had potential to, I wouldn't say great spy, she had potential to get places that the French would have had difficulties getting to Mm -hmm. with normal assets. And she was willing to work for them and they had something in their hand. She had a fiancé who was not even French, and she wasn't even French, but willing to work for them who the Germans at that stage trusted, you just don't throw it away unless you know, unless she's burnt, unless the Germans found out that she works for the French. Now that is a question we don't know why. We talked previously of the honeypot method, seduction in a, as a tool in spycraft. But is there ever the honeypot as the spy method? It's more or less the same thing. Two ways to look at it. One is to get information through her, from the contacts she has. The other thing is that through the contacts she makes, to make contact with them and try and recruit them because now you know something about them. But that wasn't the case with her. They wanted her to get information from people that she met. They didn't say to her, listen, we want you to make contact with people and then we'll try and recruit them or get something bad about them or something that there's, we can blackmail or, or something else and we can use it against them. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case here. So it's the same thing in my opinion. She wasn't going to be something else. She was Matahari. And as I said, she didn't have to work to be Matahari. She just was. She just was this woman that people wanted to be associated with because it gave them something they can talk about. And that was good enough. They didn't need more than that. 
So was she a victim and pawn in the game of spies? She was a very much a victim. What lessons can we learn from Matahari, someone delving into the world of espionage? Well, there's many lessons. First of all, if someone offers you a million dollars, it's not real. Francs, yeah. That's why. <laughs> if someone offers you a million francs on ask the table in advance. <laughs> in advance no, ask, ask for an, for an advance. Ask for an advance. <laughs> so you can have some something. But look, again, it's... it's what look, at, look, at, look at it as well from, from her point of view. Is a million francs something that she was... Uh, if she is used to getting gifts and presents in from high-level people and high-ranking people, and this guy is the head of the intelligence, so-called, even though he's a captain. But still, she's used to getting gifts and money and jewelry and all sorts of good stuff from people for her favors. So she expects that, but not that kind of money. It's a lot. It's it's, it's it, when I it, it doesn't doesn't make sense doesn't make sense now why would it, when what stage does she get it well it, to me it only makes sense if it's part of this whole thing if you manage to infiltrate the crown prince of the Western Front then yeah you've earned a million francs then she could have still done it but why didn't he was allowed to do it unless it was a setup it was a setup unless they thought from the beginning she cannot be trusted. She is a German spy, and therefore we have to find a way to eliminate her or get her away from any asset that could be damaging for us. And that's why she was put on trial. In the end, the French believed, or at least that's how the story goes, that she was a German spy. We don't care about what she did for us because it wasn't important enough, and that's why we had to we executed her because we needed as a boost morale for our for our country and she served her country well by doing that so was she a hero for the french in the end (laughs) it's a twisted way to look at it (laughs) i know (laughs) anything else you want to say no it's just it's just sad it's when you look at it it's a sad story of a a person trying to make make a living and trying to make a mark on in the world and with a tragic life and yes a tragic life she died when she was in her 40s early 40s yeah Well, we'll end with a quote from Matahari herself. I am a woman who enjoys herself very much. Sometimes I lose. Sometimes I win. Death is nothing. Nor life either, for that matter. To die, to sleep, to pass into nothingness. What does it matter? Everything is an illusion. And she created the greatest illusion of all. The illusion of Matahari. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember, if someone offers you a million francs, I would recommend to ask for an advance. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you're listening from. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message, and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.